Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly exploration of all things Brexity. This week, yes, it's a year to go till Brexit Day. Well, a bit less than a year now, to be precise. But by this time next year, Britain will have left the European Union. Although, to be fair, it probably won't feel like it, because if all goes according to plan, we will immediately enter a two-year standstill or status quo transition period, during which everything will be pretty much exactly the same as it is now. But still, March the 29th, 2019 is a significant date. The UK, if you believe the Brexiters, will have taken back control of its borders, its laws and its money, in principle, if not yet in practice. While for the EU, a member state will have left the bloc for the very first time in its history. So, this was what you might call a pre-anniversary, if that's a word. And as the media likes to do with all anniversaries, there was a veritable slew of programmes and articles and columns last week to mark the occasion. None of them left us any the wiser, of course, about what Brexit will actually look like when it finally happens. That's still as clear as mud. And an awful lot could happen over the coming 12 months to change what Brexit means Brexit, to coin a phrase, actually means. Anyway, with me today to chew over what's happened so far and to take a few educated guesses about what might be coming next are Brexit Means regular pundits, The Guardian's Brexit policy editor Dan Roberts and Brussels correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to both of you. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi. Um, Jennifer, let's start with where things stand right now from the EU's perspective with a year to go, shall we? I guess it's fair to say that the script has pretty much followed the 27's playbook so far, hasn't it? Article 50 divorce talks before the trade negotiations, no cherry picking of the four freedoms, a status quo, time limited transition period, all that kind of thing has come to pass. Um, so looking back over, uh, you know, where, where, from where we are now, ha- has the EU in fact given ground on anything at all, do you think? Well, in a word, no, not on the, the big thing, certainly, that you mentioned, the sequencing of the talks, the insistence on uh, maintaining the EU rulebook. But I think it wasn't inevitable that it went that way. And if we rewind back to the morning after the referendum, that June morning mm. when everyone was waking up to learn the result that Britain had voted for Brexit, I don't think anyone could have predicted that it would have gone exactly this way for the EU. And I think from the EU's point of view, it's gone better than anyone would have dared hope for. Mm. Because the fact is the EU has managed to remain united so far. And partly because maintaining unity has been relatively easy because everyone can agree on the fact that the UK ought to settle its divorce bill and ought to safeguard the rights of EU citizens in the UK after Brexit. So, so far, it's been relatively easy for the EU to unite. And I think the EU has played its much stronger hand rather well. And you can see that the UK has has again and again had to accept things that it insisted it wouldn't Mm. accept. It's had to accept the EU sequencing and it's had 
to sign up to the EU's version of a, a time-limited transition where it has no say in any of the, the rules. So, yes, on, on the big things, the EU hasn't given ground at all. Yes, we can, we can see areas here and there where there have been small concessions. But by and large, we should really see this as, as a very atypical negotiation, in a sense, not really a negotiation at all. I'm reminded of some words by Pascal Lamy, a former uh, French European commissioner who described Brexit as an adjustment rather than a negotiation. Mm. And I think that's very much the pattern we've seen so far. But when we get into the next stage, into the trade talks, things might start to change. Right. But that's still in the, still the road ahead. Come. Yes, I mean, I guess it's a reflection of, in a way, really, of, of the fact, of the simple fact and kind of unavoidable fact, which maybe wasn't particularly appreciated created in Britain that, you know, I mean, the EU is basically an immensely sort of complex assemblage of of legal constructs that's been put together gradually over the sort of a half a century or so. And there simply isn't that much room for flexibility or manoeuvre or or compromise or or anything like like that in there. Yes. And once you start sort of carving out exemptions for a country that isn't in the union, then what does that mean for those that are? How can the remaining countries come to an agreement on corporate taxes or mm. or welfare standards for animals if they've already given some special magical deal to a country outside the bloc? It doesn't make any political sense at all. Mm. So that's why I think it's that sort of realisation that the EU is a, is a bloc that has its own interests. It's also... Um, helped to to really cement uh, unity. And then there's something about the Brexit process where the EU's really discovered what it's all about. And it's it's all it's really been quite an educational process and you actually hear some of the diplomats involved saying this as well that it sort of forced the eu members to look at what being a part of this club really means hmm that's right i remember yes you, you did a piece didn't you last week and you, you quoted somebody saying you know that, that that after 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 regular get-togethers people say to each other yeah well it, it does look quite cold outside yes that's right. that's uh, that came from from talking to to one of the people involved in the, the sort of eu 27 uh, working group meetings and um, and I think that is half the point, really, that it should be better from an mm. EU point of view to be inside the club than to be outside. So um, so it's a, these negotiations really are a reminder of that fact. It's also a point that Michel Barnier likes to make quite frequently. He describes sort of Brexit as a as a an, as a lesson, as a as an educational process. Mm. This always goes quite down goes down quite badly in the British media because it's sort of interpreted as we're going to teach you a lesson but I think it's not quite what he means but he, he's really trying to uh, suggest that Brexit is educational for the EU as well. For everybody involved, yes exactly. Well I think we can say Dan can't we that it has been quite pretty educational for the British side at least so far. I mean it, I mean, it's quite hard to avoid the impression isn't it that, that Britain has basically rolled over on, on pretty much everything so far. I mean you and I I did a, an article last week. We put together a list of 11 promises that have been quite Brexit promises that have been quietly dropped over the past 18 months or so. Um, has it been all one way traffic? Um, yeah, mostly <laughs> in the wrong direction, I think. I, I think the it's interesting listening to um, Jennifer talk about um, the sense of things having gone better than expected from the Brussels perspective. Uh, it's certainly true that things have gone worse than expected from the British perspective. Not even the most um, gloomy lever, uh, r- r- Romaniac, as I believe, mm. um, <laughs> uh, could have predicted 
the negotiations could have gone quite so badly from the British perspective. I mean, every single one of the um, uh, the red lines, the negotiating um, starting positions, mm. has 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 had to shift to some or great extent. I think the most the most telling thing is w- w- there was an awful lot of um, pomp and circumstance around the one year to go anniversary last week but actually what what really has just happened is that the um departure has been put back two years i mean we 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 have this sort of semantic conversation Mm. about whether it's a transition or or an implementation Mm. phase actually it's a standstill phase Mm. everything has been put back two years apart from the only things that will happen anything that will change in a year's time when we leave is we will lose our meps we'll lose our commissioner we'll lose our um uh, seat on the ECJ, uh, and, and we will lose any remaining legal protection that comes from being um, uh, a member state mm. when we negotiate the really tricky mm. stuff to come on trade. So, uh, and all the other stuff, all of the supposed upsides of of leaving, are more confused than ever. Mm. Um, uh, we don't have any sense now, really, of what the end state looks looks like, even though it, it was illusory when after after the referendum. Um, I think people could, on both sides of the argument, remain or leave, could fairly confidently predict what they thought, thought was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But now, I think the fog really has descended over the channel. I mean, <laughs> I think that the, uh, the if you had to ask me to guess what the country was going to look like in five years' time, I'd be a lot I find it a lot Very harder hard than I would have do done it. a year ago. Uh, um, and I think that I think the fog will be there for at least three years now. That's hmm. the other thing. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, well, let's try and pin down some some you know actual uh, uh, things that we can be sure of. Uh, Jennifer, in in purely practical terms, looking ahead then for the for the coming twelve months, what's the timetable now as far as the twenty seventh is concerned? Um, what needs to be sorted out between now and June, which is the next summit, um, and then obviously the, the the one after that, October, which is we're, we're told is that is the deadline for getting the withdrawal agreement properly done and dusted. Yes, you're, and you're right to highlight those summit dates, and and that seems to be the pattern that Brexit has settled into now. That there's a period of negotiations between the British and the EU team, and then it's then there's a build up to to various summits where EU leaders will sort of mark the report cards, mm. and then the, the talks move on to the next stage. So as you say, the next um, moment will be in June, which could be quite a crucial moment for for the Irish border issue. Certainly, the Irish government wants to see that that issue. Um, really nailed down and we've already seen that the the UK side has agreed on the so-called backstop mm. that the um, the UK uh, the Northern Ireland would remain aligned to EU uh, customs and mm. some single market rules in the event of no better solution which uh, nobody has any um, much idea of at the moment so the, the Irish would really like to see more progress on that in June and I think they're backed by some other countries as well who don't want to leave this issue to the last minute and the last minute potentially being October which is the 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 um, the deadline that um, Michel Barnier has always penciled in is the moment when he wants to get the the Brexit withdrawal mm. um, treaty finally agreed, and the summit um, for that would be in, in mid October. So that would be the moment for EU leaders to sign that off. 
And just remind us why it's so important that, that, that it is signed off by October. Well, in theory, that's, because, that's to allow for the European Parliament to ratify the deal before March the, the 29th, 2019. Mm. I mean, I say in theory, of course, the, the European Parliament does have to give its consent to the Brexit withdrawal agreement, and that's an important step that can't be ignored. It does seem to me that six months is rather on the long side to do that, um, albeit that there are various committees that will have to scrutinise the text. But I do wonder if the EU negotiators are building themselves in a little bit of slack in case a bit more time is needed. And there's, there's also the potential, perhaps, in, for the, um, the Article 50 process to be extended by a few weeks if, um, if both sides if, and if all, if all 28 countries involved in agree, agree. So you could say that's a big ask, but I think it's still at the back of people's minds that it's a possibility. But the really hard deadline will be in May 2019 when there will be European elections. And I think for the EU side, they really want Brexit to be complete by that moment. So that would be that would be the final moment. So if the timetable does slip in October, I think it's that's not um, that's not an impossibility. And there is a bit of room and flexibility in that timetable. But I think we shouldn't expect any any long drawn out extension. Six weeks max or so, really, yes. because you couldn't afford. OK. Um, OK. Well, so, Dan, obviously, those dates um, that Jennifer was talking about uh, will clearly be important important ones in the British government's diary too. But uh, there are some some important domestic ones, aren't there, as well, particularly some potentially kind of quite crunch votes in the Lords and the Commons. Could you just talk us briefly through through from from the sort of UK perspective what the government needs to get through in terms of legislation and and, and whether it'll manage it? I mean, what what, what is the strength of of political resistance now to the government's vision for Brexit, such as it is? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I'll deal first with the mountain of legislation that's got to come Mm. through between now and next March. Um, There are 11 bills in total are um, our colleague Jill Rutter, who's a regular on this mm. show um, from the Institute of Government, has a very handy little chart of all the the, the different bills and where they um, where they are in the the long process of getting them through Parliament. and And what's most striking about it, um, as anybody um, uh, who was actually in the room with me rather than listening to me describe it would see, <laughs> is the big white space. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, because um, although some of the bills, so for example, the EU withdrawal bill, which is the one that starts started off the Article Fifty process, is one that gave the government, um, after they lost the court mm. case, the government had to bring in legislation to invoke Article Article 50. And um, that is the sort of most progressed in that it's currently, according to Jill's chart, in the uh, committee stage of the Lords. Um, but almost all the others have still got quite a long way to go. Some of them we haven't see, even seen um, uh, so much as a white paper on yet. Um, um, the, uh, the the migration bill is the one that um, is particularly interesting. If you remember, we had a leak of an early mm. draft of this um, a few months back Um uh, courtesy of our uh, colleagues Alan Travis and Nick Hopkins, and um, uh, since then you've heard seen absolutely hide nor hair of it um, in Westminster. I think because it is seen as such a particularly controversial mm. piece of legislation. So that that's not even has, let alone been introduced into the Parliament. We don't even know what it's going to look like. Um, the same goes for the Fisheries Bill, which is a sort of big blank hole at the moment. And the Trade Bill is a really interesting one where um, there are a number of amendments kicking around to require us to stay inside a customs union. Remember, this is a now official Labour Party policy as well. So there's a potential alignment there of Labour 
uh, and some Tory and rebels, rebels that could bring yeah. down that legislation if the customs amendment isn't uh, accepted. So that's been postponed. We were told it was meant to be um, heading back before Easter and now it's been postponed until we think possibly May. So all of this is backing up, basically. And then there's the big one, which is the... Um, I'll, give it, I'll read out its full title, <laughs> which is the Withdrawal Agreement and Implementation Bill. This is the, um, again, government's forced into making this um, binding primary legislation by the Dominic Grieve uh, rebellion before Christmas. But this basically forces the government to take its result of its negotiations with Brussels and bring it back to Parliament mm. um, and have a, a, um, a, an up and down vote on on. on, on on whether to accept the uh, withdrawal agreement that's been negotiated, and that is also that is expected to be in parallel with the um, European Parliament process that Jennifer's just been describing. So that will be October, mm. November, possibly December, January, depending <laughs> on how, well how, all, how much slippage how well there is. Goes. Yeah. And yeah. then there is the then to come to your final question, which mm. is like, what is the state of political opposition to this, or or, or obstacles mm. to this? Um, that is the the currently where we're at, I think, in British politics, which is deciding what happens if that bill does not get voted through because um, there is a growing groundswell of voices not in the leadership of either party i hasten to add mm. but but in the gaps the big gap between mm. these two um polar opposites um saying that well we should have um a, an option of of not doing it if we if the if parliament decides this deal sucks uh, there should be an opportunity to say to have a rethink, um, whether that's through um, renegotiation or which is the sort of official Labour Party position mm. th- or whether that should be through throwing it back to the country in a general election or referendum, which is the anti-Brexit um, point of view. Um, we just don't know yet. But that's where we've got to really, which is um, if we can get these other 10 pieces of legislation through the, um, in, in, in the next four to nine months, then we come to a big showdown in the autumn over the final one, which is the withdrawal bill, um, uh, in, in, uh, the withdrawal agreement, the implementation yeah. bill, sorry. And then uh, the question is, well, if that doesn't go through, mm. what next? Yeah, yeah. And with the withdrawal bill, of course, crucially, uh, you know, has to contain... Um, an, an element describing what the end state roughly will look like, um, and you know that, uh, that 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 that's really, I suppose, is going to be one of the big uh, the, the big nubs of the whole debate over the coming months. Jennifer, um, looking at those actual issues that might affect what happens in the year ahead, um, you, you wrote about how. Brexit had brought the EU together around a sort of a very clear idea of what kind of Brexit should be on offer, the sort of the, the end state, the, 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 the future relationship. I was particularly struck by a phrase from one of the people you interviewed um, who, who, who talked about the, the said that the, the political price of a soft Brexit was a lot higher than the economic price of a hard Brexit, which I thought was a very neat way of, of summing up the, the EU's position. So, I mean, in brief, is, is that the kind of Brexit that the EU is heading for? And with the other problems that the bloc is facing, because, you know, Brexit is, is, is really, in, in many senses, sort of on the back burner for, for the EU, can that unity around that core idea of what Brexit should look like, can that be maintained? Yes, that, that is a, a key question, I think. And the, the quote you mentioned is, um, is from Luke van Midlaar, who is a, a Dutch historian and political theorist. And he, he's particularly interesting because he worked for a former European Council president, um, the first European Council 
permanent council president, Herman Van Rompuy. So he had a, a sort of a seat at, um, at the table, if you like, during um, the, the years of the Greek debt crisis, mm. and um, very much saw how the how this EU instinct for for self preservation kicked in because that, during those years when when Grexit was the main issue rather than than Brexit, mm. um, there was often the the um, this idea that um, that Greece was going to be ejected from the single currency, that it was too much for the other for the other countries um, to, to keep it inside. But at the end of the day, there was always this certainly a sense, or the, the lesson people have drawn from that episode is that people underestimated the the capacity and the willingness of the EU to maintain its its, its unity. Right. And, and perhaps that's a lesson that's worth bearing in mind when we think mm. about Brexit. And I think the, the point that he was making that was particularly interesting was that it's easier for the, the EU to to agree on a hard Brexit. And there's a kind of, there's a there's a sense to that, because I think if, if Theresa May turned around tomorrow and said, well, actually, we'd like to stay in a in a form of customs union, can we work that out? Then that's, that's a lot harder than the UK leaving the, the customs union. And equally, that, I think that's why the, the EU has been so attached to these particular models and structures, and doesn't want to depart from them. I mean, of course, the, the Norway model, mm. or the or the, the the Switzerland model, or the FTA Canada model, because it's it's very hard to to come up with something new. Because as soon as you do, and you start drawing the the boundaries in a different way, then you, if you're offering something something special to a country outside, then what's the what's the incentive for those who are paying the EU budget and following the rules? inside mm. so i think that's i mean as i as i was saying before that was that's helping to to shape unity but it's an interesting question whether you can maintain that given all the other issues that are testing eu unity at the moment we're seeing very different views on how to reform the eurozone between mm. france and germany but then also between northern europe and and southern europe we're seeing a very a, poisonous debates about the rule of law in, mm. in Poland and Hungary and that's that's an issue that's really testing the EU to the core what do, what do you do if, if member states seem to have a, a while remaining in the EU sort of exit from the, the core values and the rules so I, but what's been interesting so far when, it, when we just look at Brexit is that none of these issues have really impinged on Brexit which has so far been put in this special bureaucratic box and everyone's managed to sort of keep it as a separate issue that doesn't actually, um, uh, doesn't, it doesn't, there haven't been any spillover effects from those other uh, difficult issues. And I think that's probably that's likely to, to be maintained in the future, and although it depends on the, the ambition and the scope of the future hmm. trading agreement. And, and that's already a discussion in Brussels. Do you want to have a very sort of detailed vision of that trading agreement for agreed in October, or do you want something a bit um, a bit more bare bones, a bit less um, detailed, which of course is easier for the EU27 to agree. So yeah. I think there's some sense that we might end up with something rather rather less um, less decorative than a Christmas tree. That seems to be the <laughs> okay. metaphor of, of choice at the moment. Let's not have a Christmas tree. <laughs> All right, Dan. Yeah. Well, okay. So I mean, if the, so, if the EU has basically kind of coalesced around the idea of a harder Brexit because it's simply because it's easier. Um, you know, the government, the British government, 
is still no closer, really, is it, to defining exactly what it wants, or at least I suppose maybe not so much what it wants, but what it can realistically expect to get. Um, but at the same time, the clamour from business for for clarity is getting steadily louder. People do seem to be realising that without you know any gr- a, a great deal more certainty on what that future relationship will look like then the transition period is really just kind of postponing that that regulatory cliff edge that everybody is so terrified of. How do you see the coming months panning out politically? I mean, is it going to be possible for Theresa May to keep fudging things for as long as she can, and possibly even up to March the 29th? Well, the worrying thing is there's a sort of alignment of interests to keep this fudge as vague as possible, because not only is it in the... A government's interest not to really fess up to how awful mm. this deal looks <laughs> until it's too late to do anything about it. But it's now the official opposition's official policy to to kind of collude in the can-kicking exercise. Uh, uh, Emily Thornberry, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, sort of let slip last week what I think is the leadership view in the Labour Party, which is that there'll, there'll be a blah-blah-blah deal, she said, um, right. on the table. Which is precisely I, what I, Jennifer it'll, was just talking I, about. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it won't say very much in mm. detail about what's to come, mm. but, it'll be, it, but it'll be sufficiently vague to allow everybody to read into it what they want. And she used that phrase, blah-blah-blah, as an excuse for saying, why well, Labour would be prepared to vote for it mm. Because it would allow, it would be sufficiently plastic and malleable to, to allow them to mm. say that it passed Labour's tests on on a yes. jobs first Brexit and yep. various other no, no. woolly. Oh, that's quite a dangerous. Words stance to it take, was breathtaking it? And, and there was a fierce backlash and Keir Starmer tried to kind of water it down a little bit but I think it was a very honest moment from the Labour front bench which was basically they want out too. the leadership does not want Brexit to be derailed and much like the hard the ultra Brexiteers the reason they think that's okay is they think that once it, once we're past the finish line once we're over out they can impinge their own view of it on uh, that they can make make of Brexit what they want so much as they're the ultra Brexiteers, I think, don't imagine Theresa May will stick around much after March mm. 2019, and therefore they can then shape things. Clearly, Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour leadership want to be in power. So, so ba- but what you're saying so, basically is that after 29th of March 2019, Brexit sort of comes up for grabs in exactly. a sense that it isn't really at the moment. Oh, exactly. Well, well, in the sense that eventually it's going to have, we're going to yeah, have to decide yeah, what we yeah, want. Yeah. Um, but the point, the, the other crucial thing is after March 2019, there is no turning back. Mm. I mean, I think that that although Many people, again, both party leaderships argue that there hasn't been any turning back since the referendum. In practice, there is quite a lot of op- the, the, the questioning all the time. You know, could we change our mm. minds? Should we have a second referendum? Blah, blah, blah. All these, I'm using blah, blah, blah. It's infectious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but but after March 2019, there is no legal political vision for, for reverse gear. No, yeah, I mean yeah. maybe in 30 years' time we mm. might kind of. So that's why I think there is this collusion in getting mm. us over that point without really fessing up to what it means right um, right i mean jennifer just briefly as we were running out of time a little bit is that i mean it, it, does that it, is the eu prepared for that eventuality do you think that's what europe is sort of expecting half expecting to happen i think everyone's working on the assumption that brexit will happen on the 29th of march 
2019 and that there will be no turning back from the UK. And it would it would be a, actually a shock and a, probably a difficult thing for the EU to decide exactly what to do if the, if the UK did change its mind. I mean, I'm sure that the UK would re, um, would remain a member, but there would certainly be a debate about on what terms and mm. whether you could guarantee that there wasn't going to be another referendum uh, that maybe produced an, a narrow result in the other way, a sort of 52-48 uh, mm. remain, which could be just as politically difficult for the UK and the EU. But yes, it, it, it is preparing for all eventualities in, in terms of, if you look at the, uh, the advice it's sending out to industry groups, it's still telling people that uh, Brexit will happen on the 29th of March 2019, which is, and there's a not too subtle reminder here that yes, there's a transition, but it's only a transition on paper and that it, back to our favorite phrase, nothing is agreed until mm. everything is agreed. And that's certainly um, the line that the EU likes to keep reminding the UK that there's still, still more to be done before um, it's all nailed down in October. Mm. Mm. Dan, just very briefly, finally, a, a lot of the chat last week was about uh, the possibility of a, of a second referendum. What's the balance of probabilities and outcomes, do you think, there, between this question of a sort of a meaningful vote on the final deal and a, a possible public say? Well, I was more optimistic a few weeks ago because I think the penny was beginning to drop uh, in terms of how much betrayal there was of from... Leavers and uh, and remainers. I think why I'm a bit more gloomy in the last couple of weeks has been what I just alluded to in this mm. intransigence on the, on the Labour leadership, because um, any scenario um, that gets us to to a second referendum or or, or more ideally a general election um, requires a shift in position um, from Corbyn on this. And if anything, we've seen a digging in yeah. of the heels in the last couple of weeks. So without a shift there, the latest today is talk of David Miliband coming back, the prince across <laughs> the water, the the return of the the centrist uh, uh, hero, hero. But that that that's a really long term game. I mean, mm. it, you know, the the reinvention of the the political centre is not going to happen between now and March twenty nineteen. No, so no. so if you it, it, so. If this is just about Brexit rather than a much bigger thing, and I think it's a much bigger thing, but if it was just about Brexit, you, you, the only road, the only path to changing the country's course goes through Corbyn, and right now he's pretty adamantly yeah, against. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, uh, yes, I mean, it does sound like about the only thing we can be absolutely sure of then is that the coming year is not going to be short of developments. And on that note, we'll call it a day. That's it for this week. My thanks to Dan and Jennifer once again for joining me today. Please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. We'll be taking a brief break next week. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 18th of April. Till then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.